Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A rainforest without rain, devastating drought, sapped the Amazon's ability to absorb and store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The 2005 drought, it stopped the sink, it flipped it the other way to a source, and it increased the magnitude by two. So (laughs) it went from moderate sink to a strong source as a result of 2005. Two droughts of the century in just five years take their toll on the Amazon. Also, we go birding by ear with birders who can't see. Oh, there's a red start, that real squeaky song, but a catbird. Oh, the red start is really quite close now. Sometimes by making that noise, you'll actually attract the birds to come closer. Come closer, we'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth, reprising some stories we think very airing. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In recent years, two severe droughts have devastated parts of the Amazon rainforest, and researchers are trying to calculate the damage. In 2005, the lack of rain in the rainforest was called the drought of the century, but just five years later, the situation was even worse. The forest is drying, and the trees are dying, destroying the vast forest region's ability to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. University of Leeds researcher Oliver Phillips says instead of acting as a carbon sink, the Amazon forest is becoming a huge source of climate-changing gases. In 2005, we, we think the Amazon lost about 1 billion tons of carbon. What droughts do is they, they've killed trees, as all that dead wood decays, that gets converted into carbon dioxide, and that's what then goes to the atmosphere. So, so if you like, what happened, the 2005 drought what did was actually, it stopped the sink, it flipped it the other way to a source, and it increased the magnitude by two. So <laughs> it went from a from moderate sink to a strong source as a result of 2005. Whoa. Yeah, well, yeah, so, that, so it, was, it was a big impact. A billion metric tons is close to the emissions of all the cars on Earth at the moment. In other words, the amount of CO2 that they're emitting was actually a little bit less than the impact of the 2005 drought. So the question now after the 2010 drought, which was bigger in climatological terms than 2005, is did that also kill trees? And we suspect, based on our 2005 analysis that 2010 will have killed even more trees and have caused even more carbon to be emitted to the atmosphere. Uh, Really, what we're looking at here is kind of a giant feedback loop. The more drought we have, the more trees die, which will lead to more drought. Well, there's lots of possible um, interactions in the system. Now, now one of them is the system gets drier, then uh, growth may decline and, and the death of trees may accelerate, so you get release of carbon to the air. And that, in turn, accelerates climate change. And we expect that the changing climate this century will act to strengthen the dry season, particularly across the southern Amazon. So the kind of droughts we're seeing now 
they are consistent with a global climate change picture. Do these intense uh, droughts, do they affect the composition of the forest, the types of trees that uh, survive? Last time in 2005, we did find that the drought was actually killing some kinds of trees more than others. In some of our plots, it was the palms which were really suffering. And that kind of makes sense in ecological terms because these are species which are found mostly in the western wet part of the Amazon and tend to drop out in the drier areas. So, you know, the implication is if you've got if we have several of these droughts, one after the other, that would drive some change in the composition, if you like, the biodiversity of the system. And, of course, you know, naturally we would expect that those kinds of trees which are more resilient to drought uh, may turn out to be the winners uh, if this process continues. But those, uh, those trees which you call winners, uh, are they good at absorbing carbon, lots of carbon, or are the losers the ones that absorb carbon? On average, the trees in the drier part of the Amazon are a little bit shorter than in the wetter part. So we expect if the forest dries that, if you like, the average height of the tree will start to decline. Uh, it'll change in, in form in the kinds of species and, and it'll, some carbon will be lost. The last sentence of your study in science uh, really sent shivers up my spine. And I'm going to quote. It says, if drought events continue... The era of intact Amazon forests buffering the increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide may have passed. In other words, if we have more droughts, then the Amazon's ability to absorb more carbon dioxide is, is over. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. I mean, and when you think about the implications of, of that, it's, it's, it's really, the Earth is, is a, you know, it's a big place, obviously, and it's not just the Amazon which is, which is important in like affecting the rate in which CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere. There are other big carbon sinks too. Um, there's the African forest, which is also large. Um, there are forests in the temperate zone. In, in the US and in Europe, there are big forest areas which are probably currently absorbing carbon. And if you add up all those forest areas around the world, they provide us with, with a hell of a service so far in slowing down the rate in which CO2 is accumulating in the atmosphere. The scenario for this century now is what's going to happen to those carbon sinks if those sinks slow down and stop then we can emit that much less carbon dioxide um, if we want to keep our earth a, a safe place to live oliver phillips is a professor of geography at the university of leeds in the uk and co-author of the study the 2010 amazon drought in science magazine of scientific sleuths have been scanning the globe for lost frogs. The researchers weren't searching for your ordinary garden variety frog, but a hundred species of amphibians that haven't been seen in at least a decade, some in more than a century. The sharp-snouted day frog has been missing for 13 years. Well, the results of the Global Frog Survey are now in, and there are many surprises and some major disappointments. Robin Moore, an amphibian expert at Conservation International, led the search. And Robin, we spoke to you last fall when you just started looking for frogs. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. You hope to find 100 lost species of frogs, and you didn't even come close. Yeah, we, uh, we found a total of four in the end. So it was a, a disappointing number for sure. 
Well, number one on your top 10 list of lost frogs to find was uh, something called the golden toad in Costa Rica. Did you find it? We did not find the golden toad. That was one I was disappointed about. I was hoping that some species may come out of the woodwork, you know, some species that we thought had gone may turn up to be there. But uh, the golden toad was one that just remained elusive and did not turn up. What do you think happened to it? It would seem that this deadly fungus that's been wiping throughout the world may have been responsible. And it may be a combination of the fungus with climate change. And I think it's likely that, as in the case of a lot of amphibians, it's just a lot of factors are conspiring to make a sort of deadly cocktail of threats to amphibians. You had high hopes for the Mesopotamia beaked toad. What happened to the Mesopotamia beaked toad? I love the way that sounds. Yeah, the Mesopotamia beak toad, uh, ironically, it lives in Colombia. Um, it hadn't been seen uh, in almost 100 years. I was hopeful that we might come across this, uh, and unfortunately, we, we didn't find this species. But our lack of finding our lost species in Colombia was, was made up for by some potentially new species that we came across. So it was kind of a bittersweet expedition. Yeah, I guess you found a frog, a species of frog that, that uh, has no name. It, it was never found before. Well, there's a a toad with red eyes that really is an unusual species. It has no name. It's never been found. So it's really uh, right now a mystery as to what what this is. We've been uh, doing a little brainstorming on what to call it, and we're not sure actually what we will name it. We want to call it something that's descriptive and sort of appropriate to where we found it and what it looks like, because it's very unusual with these red eyes. You found it in the rainforest, right? Yeah. How about the Columbia red-eye rainforester? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. You really struck it rich in India. There was one frog that was found in a in a trash can? Yeah, we, we came across uh, one of the lost frogs, hadn't been seen for 30 years, uh, in a rubbish bin, in a trash can. So how did you know to look in a trash can for a frog? Uh, I wasn't actually looking for a frog when I lifted the lid on the trash can. I was uh, disposing of a banana skin, so it really was unexpected. It started bouncing around the inside of the, the rubbish bin. So I just pulled it out, and, and Dr. Bijou, who we were with from the University of Delhi, was able to instantly recognize it as one of the lost frogs. You also went to Haiti, and I think the real challenge there is, is not just finding the, the frogs, but finding the, the forest. One of the things we wanted to highlight with our expedition there is that there is still some forest left. There's some small patch of beautiful cloud forest perched on top of this rugged mountains, very remote, isolated area. Uh, so we went to show the world that there is still incredible biodiversity uh, and species that live nowhere else. One of the species we came across was the ventriloquial frog. We were able to hear its call. It has a very distinctive call. Kind of weird. Yeah, it, it's quite a complex call for such a little frog. Um, and one of the interesting features is it actually throws its call. So how we usually find these frogs is we we listen for the call and then we home in on the the source of the call and we find the frog. With this one, we were homing in and it was leading us to nowhere. The frog was was throwing its call, so it made it very challenging to actually find this thing. The one I really am curious about is one in uh, Haiti called the Mozart frog. Why is it called the Mozart frog? Yeah, it's got a very interesting name and an interesting story, actually. The person that described that frog took some call recordings, and when he plotted them out on an audiogram, 
they bore a remarkable resemblance to the musical notes in one of Mozart's scores. So he, he called it the Mozart's frog after this. You also found a frog with a very froggy voice. Okay, yeah, we also found the Micaiah burrowing frog. Uh, this was another surprise, because uh, this had never been found in this area before. So it had the, the team a little baffled, actually, when we, when we heard and when we found this one, because it really it wasn't even on our list of ones that we hoped to find. Do you have a, a favorite frog call that you can mimic? <laughs> I uh, There is a video online where I was asked to do some frog calls, and I've never lived it down. <laughs> But I think one of my favorite ones is a, a frog in Australia called the Pobblebonk frog. Uh, and it basically just goes Pobblebonk, Pobblebonk, Pobblebonk. It's basically named after exactly how the call sounds, Pobblebonk. <laughs> what is it about frogs that you find so fascinating? I always found them fascinating growing up. I think it was the fact that I could pick them up and play with them and I could take the tadpoles home and watch them develop. I felt a very intimate connection with them that I couldn't get with birds or, or mammals that would bite me. Um, and now that I'm older, I, amphibians, to me, are, are at the forefront of uh, an extinction crisis. So they're an exceptionally important group of vertebrates uh, that are sounding an alarm. They're telling us something is wrong. And they play a very important role in our ecosystems that we're all reliant on. So to me, they're, they're extremely fascinating, but also very important animals. Well, Robin Moore, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Robin Moore travels the world in search of amphibians for Conservation International. Just ahead, red is the new green in Borneo's rainforest. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. What's green, 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 and red all over? Give up? It's red, spelled R-E-D-D. Red is a market mechanism designed to preserve the world's rainforests. Red stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. The way red works is simple in principle. Make a tree more valuable if it's left standing than if it's cut down. Potentially, red forests could be worth billions, but the red mechanism is still experimental, so the Nature Conservancy, perhaps the world's wealthiest environmental organization, is trying to get red off the drawing board and put it to work in the rainforest of Borneo, where it might serve as an example for the rest of Indonesia and perhaps the world. From Eastern Borneo, Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. Borneo. Indonesians call it Kalimantan, Tropical forest, iconic for its orangutans and its seeming endlessness. Coal mines and oil palm trees have flattened much of it, but you can still see some if you get up high enough. Nawa Irianto, with the Nature Conservancy, climbs the rungs of a fire tower. Kalimantan uh, in the past is just almost like this, all of the island. But now, only in the, in the remote area, we can find few like this. Far below, a blur of brown-gray swings from tree to tree. Monkeys. If brown or red is, then it's the very rare one. 
For years, the Nature Conservancy tried to protect forests like this one by buying them. But even a group with a billion-dollar budget can only afford to buy a fraction of the forest. It's a kind of triage. Conservancy biologists pore over satellite photos of disappearing forest they know most can't be saved. I think, you know, the mentality that we, the conservation community, has had for a long time is, is it sort of this painful process of prioritizing only the most critically endangered places. That's Bronson Griscom, a climate specialist with the Nature Conservancy. Once wildlife experts identify the very most endangered places, they try to protect them, for example, by making them into a park. And that is and remains a core strategy for the Nature Conservancy. But, you know, the world is not going to be one big park, and we recognize that. Even when land is protected as national park, these parks often exist only on paper. Hungry people, sometimes people who were displaced to create the parks in the first place, farm and hunt inside the parks. Plantation companies build roads. Park rangers are few and underpaid. Faced with this reality, the Nature Conservancy made a major break with the past. It began working with logging companies. Griscom says conservationists figured out a lot more animals survive in a timber concession than a forest converted to agriculture. The difference between a well-managed forest logged using sustainable, well-thought-out logging practices that are, that are designed to mimic natural disturbance and a converted forest, converted to some kind of plantation like oil palm, is, is night and day. I mean, you're talking about a system that is, that is maintaining almost all of the biodiversity on the one hand as compared to a system that's maintaining very little of it. The Nature Conservancy says, just come take a look. So we travel to the end of the road and from there take a boat to Long Pai, an indigenous Dayak village. Jonas Lacan, a community leader, welcomes visitors into a traditional raised house. There's a computer and maps of the village's traditional forests. Just a few years ago, Lacan recounts, this village was locked in a conflict with a well-known timber company that was clear-cutting. They cut down our fruit trees. They even cut down the trees where we keep our bees. At a certain point, the community got fed up with the company and took away the keys to the bulldozers in protest. This cutting was contrary to the way they'd use the forest for hundreds of years. Jadi selanjutnya, melihat keadaan-keadaan perusahaan yang tidak komit dengan apa bantuan We held a protest and halted their production. We shut them down for three years. And for three full years there was a standoff. Villagers and logging company didn't talk. The Nature Conservancy got involved and people in Long Pai Village began to organize and then negotiate with the timber company. They won the right to monitor tree felling and the company agreed to avoid cutting in certain areas. With TNC's assistance for mediation, we took the company back. Before the conflict, they cut down any kind of timber they wanted. Now we monitor their activities and they cannot take any tree less than two feet in diameter. That's our way of conserving our forests. 
because if we cut the small ones, we won't have any more trees left. So resolution. And now several people have filled Jonas Lacan's living room, and they want to say why this forest is crucial for people who live here. Apa saja di sini bisa laku ini seperti saku. Everything we do, we take from the forest. Potatoes, vegetables, sago palm, rattan. You can gather them and even get enough to sell them. To me, the forest is like my car because I can get wood to make my boat from the trees there. That's why we care so much about our forest because it's like our transportation. We're very careful about which trees we cut down. In fact, we only cut down trees when we need to build our boats or our houses because we depend on the trees for our bees. At the mention of bees, several people have something to say. Honey is our sugar. We mix it in water and drink it. Itu kan kebutuhan kepentingan banyak orang. Sementara kami yang ada dalam lingkungan itu sendiri. It's so much easier for people who don't depend on the forest. They can just make decision from afar. But for us who depend on it, if the forest is gone, what will we do? The villagers say they're satisfied now with the timber company, and the logging is more sustainable. The Nature Conservancy is trying to build a replicable model based on experiences like this one in Long Pai. They're hoping to build a model for all of Borneo or even the whole country, a model for keeping carbon out of the air, having communities benefit, and protecting forest life at the same time. To understand how, remember that as part of international climate talks, richer countries are pledging billions of dollars to poorer nations to help them develop cleanly, so they can leapfrog the dirty industry of the last century. Billions of dollars are being committed to preserving forests and the carbon within them to address climate change. These billions dwarf the interest the world has ever shown in rainforest protection until now. Again, the Nature Conservancy's Bronson Griscom. You know, you're really talking about financing for forests all over the place, and the level of financing that would generate national-scale reductions, a substantial decrease of the total deforestation across the country. Instead of dealing with sort of this triage approach, where it's like, oh my gosh, we have to prioritize a few spots, you know, and just go after those. You know, it's really a much bigger scale. In fact, the Nature Conservancy sees international climate finance as the last big opportunity for tropical conservation. But for carbon money to actually change the game, village-level efforts like the one in Long Pai must be scaled up to whole country reductions in carbon emissions. In this area of Borneo, that cannot be done without timber companies because they lease forty percent of the land. So the Nature Conservancy is approaching them one by one to get them to improve their practices. It's an approach some environmental groups would find questionable. Red splinters spike up like daggers from a fresh tree stump, and swiftly, a 240 horsepower caterpillar bulldozer drags the log, racking the trees along the way. Finally, 
Bulldozer and log arrive at the logging road, a muddy gash. Probably 80 feet across. 60 feet of road, another 10 feet of pile. When it rains, these roads pour silt into the streams. This is Belayan River Timbers' concession. It's been clear-cutting. But the man in charge here, Pak Totok, instead of seeming defensive, seems dismayed. As a forester, this makes me very sad. My conscience wants more sustainable foresting. In the future, we will keep learning to do things better. Do things better because Belayan River Timber and the Nature Conservancy are coming up with less destructive ways of logging. Using engines much smaller than bulldozers. Think of this as no-gash logging. Again, Bronson Griscom. With this system, you are essentially sliding the, the logs along a very narrow skid trail that requires no bulldozer. So in the spirit of small is beautiful, we have a much smaller machine. It's an engine. How much, do you know how much horsepower? 22 horsepower. And then a bulldozer would be how much? 300. 200 to So you've got an engine that is 10 times smaller, and that is powering a big spool with a metal cable on it, and it's just a very simple device. This cable winch system uses one-tenth the fuel of logging with bulldozers. It's low-key enough that one guy is riding a log on its slow path uphill as if it's a surfboard. Smaller engines mean fewer emissions, and fewer roads mean fewer cut trees, more carbon left in the forest. The Nature Conservancy is now working with eight of the 13 timber companies who own rights in this district. One of them recently won FSC, or Forest Stewardship Council certification. Here again is the Conservancy's Nawa Irianto. In this plot, we still can see, let's say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven big trees. Means per hectare, there are still seven big trees. It's still a healthy forest. Irianto is showing off a forest that still has large trees, even though it was logged. This selective logging is a middle path between clear-cutting and roping off the forest. If forests are harvested sustainably, they have the potential to sequester more carbon than if they're simply left alone. The bulldozer logging path, too, is already growing over. That's because the operator left small hills, like giant speed bumps, every 20 yards. You've built a berm here so that when it rains, the water is not yes. going to flow down the skid road. Yes, yes. And then the water run that way, slowly, slowly, and slowly, and, and not heavy material down to the river. Nawa Irianto is the one who does much of the work of persuading timber operators here to adopt these progressive practices. He's perennially sunny and caffeine-charged and happy to explain. You know, usually people... Usually there is resistance when they encounter an environmental organization, because most nonprofits are all about advocacy. But once they see we have an economic approach and that there will be benefits to certification because they will get a premium price, 
and they can see nearby another company got certified, it's easier for us to convince the owners to move forward with certification. Certified lumber can fetch three and a half times the price of non-certified. As part of the certification, this company also has an inspector now, a tree guardian. His name is Bissam. How about some of your guys that you have working out here? Don't they say, hey, can I take this one? This one's good. Yeah, they say that sometimes, but I forbid them from cutting the tree. I say, no, you can't, because this is a protected tree. If you want to cut a tree, do it in your own village, on land owned by your community. You can do whatever you want there, but not here. Bisam is part of the new face of Indonesia and many other developing countries, well-educated young professionals who want sustainable development. And later, in the timber camp barracks where he sleeps, Bisam says not just his education, but things he's witnessed also make him yearn for forest protection. There are floods now. And there didn't used to be. My own home was destroyed by a flood. My house was destroyed because of deforestation means forests cannot absorb rainwater anymore. But if the Nature Conservancy hopes to lower forest carbon emissions across this whole district in eastern Borneo, it must work not just with logging companies, it'll also have to work closely with government at several levels. Government controls who gets to do what with land. Private ownership of land in Indonesia is practically unknown. Government slates different tracts for different uses. So the Nature Conservancy is making itself a presence right inside government offices. Working directly with them. So we come to their office. They come to our office, transferring knowledge and to show to them like the whole world is looking on them. That's Fakhriz al-Nasher. He's the Nature Conservancy's main government liaison in the region. Nasher says you wouldn't believe the impact it has on local officials when they get access to modern land use tools, like satellite maps and simulations. If you can imagine like this, Pupati, they had the number one person in this district. If he, if he come to his office room and then he see his area, oh, this is, this is the, the forest that I got, and then he can play with that. If I do this, if I change this, what will be the impact? What will be the economic gains? And then he knows like what kind of decision-making he's going to make and how that will impact to his own people. Nasher wants to show local officials that conservation forestry can pay. We need to put more options to the forest. You know, We need to put that it's not only palm oil conversion that's the most viable economic for these areas, but there are more than that. What the Nature Conservancy hopes to do is contract with logging companies and other industries across the district to lower their carbon emissions. In exchange, they'll be paid. The initial money to pay them will come from donors like France and Norway. Eventually, the emissions reductions become a commodity that can be sold by a special Indonesian board set up for that purpose. This effort provides a crucial first-of-its-kind link between a local project and a national government's promise to reduce emissions. The Nature Conservancy's efforts in Indonesia are well-known and often cited by Indonesian officials. The whole project is still very much in the early stages. No contract signed, no carbon credits sold. 
But the group's hope is that it has found a way to protect forest and the amazingly diverse life within it. If enough of that life is left there, the warm, wet forests here can regenerate, absorbing more of the carbon human beings send out. Nature, then, helping to save us from ourselves. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Coming up, 65th floor, cucumbers, tomatoes, broccoli, growing garden veggies vertically to feed cities in the future. And we go birdwatching with the blind. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, welcoming students back to college with Sierra Magazine's annual ranking of America's coolest schools. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's official. More than half the people in the world live in cities. True but said, says scientist Dixon Despamiers. In reality, the city has assumed the role of a monstrous parasite when viewed from an ecological perspective. But that unflattering assessment doesn't have to apply to cities in the future, says Despamiers. In his book, The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century, Despamiers believes things will be looking up, literally. He forecasts we'll be growing crops hydroponically without soil in high-rise buildings. Dixon Despamiers drew inspiration for his book from his students at Columbia University. He spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. A full class of students that didn't want to hear any more of gloom and doom about the environmental destruction that was going on outdoors, they said, we want to work on something more positive. So I let them. I said, this is your money. This is your time. What would you like to do? About a week later, they came back to me and they said, we think rooftop gardening in New York City would be a good idea. So I said, great. Tell me how many acres of rooftop we've got. Tell me which crops you would grow and tell me how many people you can feed with 2,000 calories a day per person. They answered that question and they could feed about 2% of Manhattan only. So I said, wait a minute now, don't get discouraged here. Take your idea off the roof and move it into the building itself. And Let's talk about how many floors of a building you could actually do this in. That began the discussion. So if I were to be standing in front of a vertical farm, my eyes closed and open them, what would I see? Oh, you'd be amazed. You'd be absolutely amazed. First of all, you wouldn't see the building because all you would see would be the plants growing inside of a totally transparent building. It would look like the plants were being suspended in midair and they were growing on. You couldn't actually tell what they were growing on. And in fact, they're not growing in soil at all. They're being grown hydroponically. Where do you get the nutrients if you use hydroponics? So all you have to do is line up all the chemicals that plants need and all the chemicals that humans need, which is about six more than plants need, and combine them together in the right ratios, dissolve them into water, and feed them to your plants. Most people would cringe when they hear that for the first time, but no one would cringe if I told you, oh, it's just like using miracle Grow on your plants. And Oh, yeah, I understand that part. How feasible do you think this is, Professor? I mean, what are the, what are the present examples of vertical farms? Oh, there are none as we speak, but I can almost guarantee you that within a year from now, there will be many. The country of Qatar has an enormous interest in this. 
China, India. They're very interested in food security and food safety. They want food that's produced by themselves. And if you live in Qatar, that's not going to happen unless somehow you import all the soil. And even then, they don't have the right climate for all of this. So everything that they're going to do has to be done indoors. If you go around the world and you say, where would vertical farming fit in beautifully into the needs of those places? You can find places like Iceland that have no soil basically whatsoever. They have six months of darkness. How, how can they possibly grow anything there? If you grow it indoors and you use geothermal energy for your grow lights, the next thing you know, you've got vertical farms going up. So in the vertical farm, how do you deal with the waste? Right. Well, we don't call it that. We call it unrealized energy. Let's take corn for an example. I would take that part that we don't eat. I would dry it down to completion. I would then powder it. And I would run it through a device, which is currently in use throughout Japan, called the plasma arc gasifier. And what that does is it takes any solid material and reduces it back to its elements. And what you get back from that device is the energy to run the device first. You get no residual material that you have to worry about. And the last thing you get back, which is much more important, is that you get some product produced by this process that you can then use in the form of a gas to burn and to create carbon dioxide, water, and heat. And the heat is then used to generate energy. The carbon dioxide and the water can be fed right back into the vertical farm. It's a closed-loop agricultural system, basically. Okay, today's agriculture and, and new food movement is predicated on a couple of things, organic agriculture, locality, and seasonality. What about thinking of June and strawberries, that sort of thing? I don't blame you. I think I can't argue against a fresh-picked strawberry in the wild. I'm, um, I love wild strawberries, and people don't even know what a wild strawberry looks like, most of them. People criticize hydroponically grown artificial, they call it artificial food, but I would just call it indoor farming. They used to criticize a lot of the uh, products produced by these farms because they didn't taste good. They looked great, but when you got them to the table, they had nothing in common with the plants that you expected them to be. That was about 10 to 15 years ago, and I think once consumerism said, you know, we don't want plants that look good, we want plants that taste good, <laughs> they went back and reexamined all of the qualities of plants. They found out very soon that the reason why outdoor plants taste so good some years but not every year is because of the stresses that the plants have undergone during the growing season, particularly just before harvest. So to know what the characteristics of the plants are to begin with means that you can control it. What do traditional farmers think of this idea? You would expect I get a lot of hate mail, <laughs> but I get a lot of curious uh, mail from farmers who uh, they want to know about the ease of hydroponic farming. They want to know about the productivity of it. They want to know about the yields. A lot of them have seen the light in the sense that how many good years in a row do you think a farmer gets? I don't care where they live and I don't care what crop they're growing. If you have 10 years in a row, I'll be willing to bet you that you don't get more than four or five good years out of that. So they're looking for alternatives. They're curious. They're not threatened at all by this. So where's the natural connection to the land and the earth for people in this? Yeah, there, there's no natural connection to the earth. And I must qualify that statement by saying that since farming is only 12,000 years old, and since we are, at least in terms of evolution, about 200,000 years old, farming is a really very recent addition to the human technology tool chest. And let's say, for instance, it's not possible to address climate issues and the climate just keeps getting worse. 
You know what happens to farming? For every degree of increase in the average temperature of the planet's atmosphere, it's estimated we lose about 10% of the agrable land on this planet. If that continues up to five degrees, you can see the consequences will be horrible for an ever-increasing population of people unless we learn how to farm in another way. So the choices are almost zero. I, mean, I think we have to address how can a city live like an ecosystem. That's the bottom line for this whole project is to make food production at the center of an ecological behavior pattern and make them imitate the balanced ecosystems that are still left. Dixon Despamier teaches environmental health sciences at Columbia University. His book is The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. He spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. An hour north of Boston on Plum Island is the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge, a 4,600-acre birder paradise. It's one of the most spectacular uh, birding areas on the East Coast. And Bill Getty should know. He's sanctuary director of Massachusetts Audubon's Joppa Flats Education Center, just up the coast from the National Refuge. It includes uh, marshland, saltwater marshes, uh, ocean, uh, beaches, uh, some upland forest on the mainland side. We have a lot of nesting birds here, including the endangered piping plover and least tern. So uh, people come into this area to view birds throughout the year. And then there are people who come here once a year who don't view birds. So I used to think birding was all watching with binoculars and everything. That's what I used to think. Dorothy Donovan is a lifelong bird lover. She's been coming to the National Refuge every year for more than a decade, but she's never seen a bird. I've always liked birds. My mother used to have us watch the birds in the yard, and we'd all go out, and she'd tell me what was going on with them, and I'd listen to them sing, and that's always been a part of my natural world. When did you lose your sight? I was one of those premature babies that got too much oxygen. So you were born without sight? Basically, yes. Dorothy Donovan is with the Lowell Association for the Blind. The group has been part of Mass Audubon's Birding by Ear program since it started 11 years ago. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to meet over here. The blind birders gather in a parking lot at the National Refuge. Bill Getty leads the group slowly down a dirt path into a maritime forest filled with 30-foot pin cherry and birch. Okay. Why don't we do this, uh, folks? We're going to just move up just a little bit. There's a little bit of a hill. But if you listen to your left-hand side, there's yellow warbler. And it's singing, sweet, 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 I'm so sweet, or sweet, sweet, sweeter than sweet. Oh, do you hear the toe The path pitches down. It's slippery. Some of the blind birders use canes, but not all. Just go slow. <laughs> Don't make any rash moves. Bill Getty discovers something at every step. He stops and waits for the group to collect. When we go on these field trips, we're, we're birding by ear, but we also make an attempt to show and have them smell as many different things, so use as many senses as possible. There's moss, honeysuckle, and bayberry. Getty snaps off a twig from a low bush. This is certainly a nice one. Smell that. Ooh, it smells yeah. like a rose. Oh, it is a rose. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, That's it's a, a beautiful pink color. Yeah, it's a rose from the thorns. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, folks, I'm going to pass back a rose 
They have little thorns on it, so you want to be careful of that. But smell the flower. It's a beautiful Rosa Ragosa. You find a lot of this on Cape Cod near the beach. Sharon Sinsavich has macular degeneration and just had cataract surgery in both eyes. But she wouldn't miss the birding-by-ear field trip for the world. It's very important because I have a lot of faith and it makes me feel I'm closer to God's nature. And that's good. Oh, there's a red start, that real squeaky song when a catbird. Oh, the red start oh, the red is really start. quite close now. Good. I'm going to just try to... Sometimes by making that noise, you'll actually attract the birds to come closer. Bill Getty can hardly finish a sentence without identifying a bird. He's a world-class birder and naturalist. The birding by ear program for the blind was his idea. Can you imagine being blind? Okay? I mean, I, I can't imagine. And, and I can't imagine not being interested in natural history either. That's part of my soul or whatever you want to say. So we so enjoy it, but we also think it's a really important part of the uh, of Massachusetts Audubon mission to get out and try to get as many people excited about the natural world and conserving it as we possibly can. That's what we're in the business to do. Third one. Mass Audubon volunteers lead the birders out of the forest, down some steps onto a narrow boardwalk stretching out over the Merrimack Salt Marsh. Excellent. Now we're going left again. And it's going to be a little lip, not a step, but just a little round, a little lip, about an inch down. Yep. Violet Santa Maria tap tap taps her cane to make sure she doesn't fall into the salty muck. She has little vision in one eye, but her hearing is sharp, and she quickly identifies the song of the marsh wren that Bill Getty describes as a burst of bubbles. It's a small bird, only about the size of a chickadee. Oh, 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 hear that bird. I've never seen a marsh wren, but I can hear it. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. Mm, so peaceful, yeah. You don't even hear traffic around, just nature. <laughs> 84-year-old George Damaris wears thick, thick glasses, but navigates without a cane. Well, between cataracts and macular degeneration, I, I'm almost uh, illegally blind. Do you feel like you're missing anything, not being able to see the birds? Well, I can hear them. <laughs> it doesn't feel any different. I just can't see it as well, but I still enjoy it just as much as I did before. It's a step. Yep. It is a little frustrating not be able to see all the finer points of it as I once could, but it's beautiful. The day is crystal clear and warm. Tall green grasses and cattails line the boardwalk as it cuts a path through the salt marsh. It's a wonderful sight, even for those with just peripheral vision. See, I have an advantage. See the dark green? you got a white boardwalk down through the center, more or less. It's bleached, and I can uh, sit. Ed Hess lost most of his sight to macular degeneration six years ago, but he's a birding-by-ear veteran. I enjoy it. This is about my fifth trip here with the blind. Thoroughly enjoy it. I see you got a camera. Is yeah. That... You see, you take pictures. Yeah, I always, I always took pictures. Uh, I enjoy <laughs> photographs. So even though you can't see so well, you still take pictures? Yeah, I aim in the general direction, and then I go to one of these uh, 
stores where you can adjust the size and what scope you have on it and all like that. I still have a very expensive camera that I can't use because of the telephoto lens. I can't see what I'm honing in on. He's come to the refuge to take photos. His expensive camera is perched on a tripod. A humongous lens points to a distant tree. But Trudeau isn't having much luck spotting birds. You hear it, you locate it, and then you try and get the visual. So my end result is visual. Can you identify the sounds of the birds? I'm not good at it. (laughs) (laughs) But Bill Getty sure is. We had the catbird, the yellow warbler. He ticks off the birds we've heard this day. Morning dove, towhee, marsh wren, red-winged blackbirds. He says not being able to see the birds isn't necessarily a handicap. In some cases, actually, to survey birds, it's better to listen for them because... You've seen two birds, but I'm sure there are at least 20 that we've already experienced, but we've only seen two. And right behind you is the red start. There's a towhee again singing over here, drink your tea. Drink your tea, you hear the song? The birds will be in full voice throughout the summer, but Bill Getty warns, stay away until mid-August, or the greenhead flies will eat you alive. But in the fall, you should come back sometime in the evening when we have 30 or 40,000 tree swallows here. I mean, it's really a natural history wonder. It's, a, it's just fantastic. A gift for the ear, the eye, and all the senses. We leave you this week in a narrow canyon. In the Lake Mead National Recreation Area in Arizona, canyon tree frogs bleat loudly on a warm spring evening. And if you listen carefully, you might hear the faint chuckling of the relict leopard frog. It's rare. Most of these frogs can be found around Lake Mead. Jeff Rice made this recording for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, and Ike Srishkandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange-Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow.
PRI Public Radio International.